From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you're with us for another fast-moving hour of Catholic Radio here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Jack Williams will uh, be joining us in a few minutes. I'm Tom Price to kick things off here with our uh, Thursday host, Father Brian Milady. How are you today, Padre? I'm fine, thank you. Very glad to hear that. We're going to uh, go to the phones in just a couple of minutes here. Let me give you that number one more time, and that is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, and we do have listeners literally all over the world, uh, just dial the uh, U.S. country code, which is 1, and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, the address for that, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put uh, Father Brian or Thursday in the subject line. We'll want to make sure that we get the, the right question to the right host. Today, Father, uh, we're going to be talking and kicking things off here with the Apostolic Church. Yes. Uh, I thought I'd talk about this topic today because of the readings in the whole of Eastertide. Pretty much the first reading of Mass is from the Acts of the Apostles. And the reason is because the Acts of the Apostles forms a a perfect companion to the Gospel according to St. Luke. And they're often looked upon as compatible in not just a doctrinal sense, but also almost a chronological sense. So that without Acts, Luke would be truncated. Without uh, Luke, Acts would be truncated. Mm. But the two go together. Now, in the Acts of the Apostles, it's very interesting uh, that we have several characteristics. And the first one is we have, of course, the Apostolic Church, what the society was like after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then we also have certain characteristics of the spread of the gospel throughout the world. First of all, we have a distinguished from Judaism. That's a long and difficult discussion. And Paul is essential to that. His conversion is too. We also have, in a sense, the psychology of conversion and baptism in the uh, eunuch in the court of the Candace and St. Philip. We have, first of all, how paganism can relate to Christianity in the speeches of the apostles at the Areopagus in Athens, where they talk about the tomb of an unknown god, an altar to an unknown god, and also, quote, a pagan poet to demonstrate that the Athens and the Jerusalem really go together, and at the same time, we have Paul uh, getting very perturbed in his in Barnabas, because when they work miracles, the pagans all of a sudden identified them with their gods. Mm. 
you know, Zeus and Hermes and things like mm-hmm. that. And then um, we have uh, the suffering connected to the whole thing with Paul. And it's interesting that almost every time Paul goes to a place, uh, we had an example of it in the gospel today, uh, he talks first of all in the synagogue of the Jews, because salvation first comes from the Jews. This is true in Pisidia and Antioch. To Pisidia and Antioch, it's interesting, is in Asia Minor, and it was a uh, hundred miles of a mule track to get to it. Wow, and, and it was um, a retirement community for Roman soldiers. Really, ba- basically founded by Augustus. Mm. But first, Paul talks to the Jews, and then when they reject the message, then he goes and talks to the Gentiles. So all this, and there are many other things, of course, point out that Christ Himself established certain people to mediate his action on earth in a visible sense, in a visible society. And that would be the church of the apostles. Mm. Uh, We had Philip and James, their feast days recently, and they, as you know, lead people to our Lord. Can any good come from Nazareth? Come and see. (laughs) Yeah. And things like that. And all these things go together to show us that First of all, the church is not the state. There have been, as you know, a number of Protestant Christian religions, even in some ways the Orthodox have a tinge of this, that have looked upon as the emperor or the king as more or less the head of the church. And even though the bishops have a kind of role to play, well, it's not exactly clear. Now, it's more clearer with the Orthodox, but in, for example, Anglicanism, once the bishops voted to make the king the head of the church, they lost their authority, and they lost uh, basically what it means to be a bishop exactly. And so uh, they undermined their own authority in undermining the authority of the Church of Rome. Does this mean that, for example, the Pope, we need a papal decree every day? There was one fellow in the 19th century during the discussion of the infallibility who said that Catholics act like they need a papal decree every morning with their coffee and their newspaper (laughs) in order to go on with life. No, but Christ is the center because the church is one, but also we say in the creed that it's holy because it has the means to holiness, but also that it's apostolic because even in heaven, the heavenly vision of the heavenly city You remember there are 12 courses of stone that support the city because they're the visible representatives of our Lord's desire for unity of doctrine on earth, unity of discipline on earth, and also as the foundation of the ministry of the sacraments, which are uh, rituals by which we become one with him on earth. In Acts of the Apostles, There are a whole bunch of speeches. I didn't appreciate this when I actually studied it, what the importance are of the speeches of Acts. Um, Obviously, they didn't exactly have stenographers to take down recordings of this. (laughs) Although when people, they did have people in the ancient world, even in the medieval times, that were very good at uh, capturing in the notes almost verbatim. All right. But the speech, for example, today, 
that we had in which, uh, you know, the apostle stands up and he talks, first of all, about the traditions of Israel. And then he applies the prophecies and the law, because mm-hmm. it's in the context of the synagogue where the law and the prophecies is read, and he's actually invited to do this by the head of the synagogue. He applies this to the crucifixion of Christ and resurrection. And the speeches in Acts are very much like this, whether it's by Peter or by Paul, usually it's one or the other. So, in other words, the apostolic mediation is extremely important to our church. And we know that it's a part of tradition as well as a part of scripture. Some of the apostles did write, were inspired to write gospels and scriptures, uh, Paul's letters, for example. But others, it's just by word of mouth that they primarily spread the kingdom. And the scriptures are only considered legitimate because they perfectly express what was spoken by word of mouth, especially by the apostles. There was a pious old tradition, this isn't true, but it was a pious old tradition that when the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost, each one of the 12 stood up and uttered one of the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. Really? Yeah, and and this was to seat the idea that our faith is just the faith of the apostles. Mm. Now, it's true we've had councils and we've had theologians and we write all kinds of books about this and we have an expansion, but all we're trying to do is to delve into the depth of the faith of the apostles. And the requirements for apostle, especially being in Christ's company, are enumerated, remember, when they decide to replace Judas with uh, uh, Matthias. Mm. And uh, even though they cast lots for this, uh-huh. they do have certain criteria they use to determine this. So we need to thank God that at least in the Roman Catholic Church and those who are in union with Rome, that the apostolic succession is very much evident. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you for unpacking that for us, Father. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones and talk with Rolando in Illinois. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Yes, indeed. An open line is the name of the show. That's why we've got open lines just for you at 833 288 EWTN. That's 
288-3986. Big believers in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass around here, as you might imagine, and EWTN offers the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel here on campus, live every morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, right after the Sunrise Morning Show. And right now, we can send a link to your email inbox every day. Just visit EWTN.com, click on the word subscribe. That's EWTN.com, and then uh, look for that box that says subscribe, and uh, choose the Mass, you'll be good to go. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Rolando in Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Rolando. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. Grace to you both and uh, Father. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I I feel better than I deserve. Thank you. (laughs) All right. How can we help you today, Rolando? Oh, yes. Uh, first, uh, with your permission, uh, with all due respect, I'll just make a, a statement that you can enlighten me on that. Because uh, <clears throat> then the, the, this question I gave to the gentleman. First off, uh, my statement is, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the word Christian, I'm a, I'm a Catholic Christian, by the way. Uh, the word Christian was not coined by Jesus Christ himself, but it was the Romans who despised the Christians before the, uh, Emperor Constantine. I know Con- uh, Emperor Constantine uh, coined that word too, but the Romans who hated the Christians, I would say it was the N-word enduring the Roman time. You Christians, we despise you. You are nothing. Something like that. Do you want me? So, to, do you want me to answer that first? Oh uh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. That's totally false. For one thing, in the scriptures, in the apostolic mission, when they first go to Antioch, it says it was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were called Christians for the first time. That's 300 years before Constantine. So it, it was common. So uh, that's simply not true. It wasn't coined by the Romans. It was just a, a, a name that eventually became attached to the followers of Jesus who were Jews. And again, it was in Antioch that they were called Christians, and this is in the Acts of the Apostles for the first time. All right, there you go. And uh, Rolando, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Barbara wants to know, Father, would you please explain why the resurrected Jesus still had his open wounds in his hands and feet? Oh, well, that's easy to answer, especially if you read the book of Revelation. When Christ comes again, his wounds shine. And as you know, resurrected bodies normally have all their imperfections uh, resolved. So if you don't have a hand, you get your hand back and that kind of thing. Hmm. But the wounds were miraculously preserved in our Lord's body because they were the sign of his triumph over Satan. And uh, all of them. And at the end of time when Christ judges the living and the dead in the last judgment, 
as I say, all the sacred wounds will shine in the risen body. And of course, when you think about the scourging, just that one scene in Mel Gibson's yes. movie, Christ yes. scourged all over, it's going to be quite in a show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the wounds are a sign of Christ's victory. And so God miraculously preserves them. Christ miraculously preserves them because they demonstrate his victory over death. That was a tough movie to watch, Father. And, uh, it really the, was. The uh, scourging scene seemed to affect me the most, even more than the crucifixion, if that's even possible. Right, right, yeah. Because it was just so cruel. And it was so prolonged. Too. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and yet I understand uh, that, that in reality, not in a movie, but in reality, sometimes that scourging went even longer. Yes, and interestingly enough, the shroud, the holy shroud uh -huh. of Turin, mm -hmm. gives us even more insight into his wounds. And one of the things was when he was crowned with thorns, it wasn't a circle around his forehead. It was like a cap. Really? Wow. So it covered his entire forehead. Mm, my, my, yeah. my. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the phones here at 833-288-EWTN. Mary Jo is a first-time caller in Meade County, Kentucky, listening on Meade County Catholic Radio. Hello, Mary Jo. What's on your mind today? Hello, Father Milady. Um, Hi. I'm wondering if uh, Divine Mercy Sunday is optional to celebrate. Um... You mean uh, not to celebrate it as a Sunday, but as a the the low Sunday that we used to use just before Divine Mercy came in? Is that what you're referring to there, Mary Jo? Say that again, Father. Is does that mean? Are you is your question that uh, we can celebrate as it was always celebrated as low Sunday before? Uh, Divine Mercy came in and became popular. I guess so, because it was uh, said that it was just the second Sunday of Easter, that it was not Divine Mercy Sunday. That's right. So at, well, your, yeah, at, at, at your parish, Mary Jo, they didn't mention Divine Mercy Sunday at all? No. Yeah, well, it, it is optional liturgically in the sense that... It, we still use the readings and all that and prayers from the second Sunday of Easter. Mm. But it's a common, in the church, it's been commonly accepted that that's the day on which we'll call to mind the revelations of Faustina. There you go. Mary Jo, thank you so much uh, for your call. Lines are uh, filling up really quickly here, but we do have two available for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. Jerry has a question for us. Were other disciples present at the Last Supper besides the Twelve Apostles? Do we know, Father? As far as we know, no. Okay, so it was, uh, a, it was a closed event. Very much so, because remember, the Jewish Passover meal was usually a family thing. and mm. it had children and women and the whole thing. That's why the Last Supper is a very unusual Passover meal. Yeah, uh, it's reserved only to the twelve, and uh, also why? Um, well, Doctor Hahn talks about this in his book, The Fourth Cup. Hmm. They didn't really finish it ah. because it's normally finished with this fourth cup of wine, 
to celebrate uh, an aspect of Judaism mm -hmm. and its prophecies about its redemption. And he finally tumbled to the fact, after investigating it, that the fourth cup is actually when Christ drinks on the cross and says it's finished, because the whole thing is, is one action. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, there is a meal aspect to the Mass, but it's not a meal, period, like a Passover meal. When I was young in the 60s, it was customary to try to get into the whole idea. And I, I don't know how deep or important this custom was, but we, you'd actually celebrate a Seder meal um, sometime at the beginning of Holy Week just to see what, you know, to have some idea of what it was like. Mm -hmm. But that really wasn't exactly what occurred uh, in the upper room. In fact, I knew a scripture scholar who was a Franciscan who said there had to be one or two last, two or three last suppers because too much went on in one thing. Well, <laughs> I don't particularly agree with that. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying it was a very unusual Passover meal. Wow. Very good, and uh, thanks so much for your question, Jerry. Here is Brian now in St. Louis calling in and listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Brian. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hi, everybody. When I uh, try to uh, talk about the faith to people, they talk about there's uh, Christian morality and then there's secular morality, and said, why is your morality better than our morality? Now, when you approach that question, is it better to talk about it philosophically or theologically, do you think? Okay. My personal opinion is just ask them how they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, the, the whole place is going to pieces with people shooting people and teenagers committing suicide and transsexualism and the whole thing. How is our secular morality doing anyway? Mm. What kind of morals is it producing? Not much, I don't think. And uh, you can, of course, talk about it theoretically. But theoretically, as you know, they do agree on certain things, or should, if, if, because the secular morality should be characterized by the natural law. Unfortunately, because it is secular, uh, many times the natural law is denied, and it just becomes utilitarian. And once that happens, well, that produces you know, genocide and all, all these other things. Mm -hmm. So you need to ask people, just look at the evidence of your eyes. How moral are we anyway? Look at our families. How stable are they anyway? How many end in divorce? How many actually bring forth what the family was meant to bring forth, regardless of its orientation toward religion and the relationship of heaven to earth and all these things the Christian marriage is about? I don't think it's doing too well. Yeah, all you have to do is, uh, well, first of all, first I was going to say all you have to do is pick up a newspaper, but uh, these days you can't even do that. There aren't too many newspapers left anymore. But certainly if you if you turn on secular radio or secular television, you're, you're going to hear about what's going on out there in the world, and it's, it's not pretty, is it? Uh, not really. Uh, now, you do have certain newscasters who still, for example, believe in Christianity mm -hmm. or believe there is an objective morals. But apart from them, I mean, everything is up for grabs. Uh, they're, they're trying now to make pedophilia acceptable. Oh, boy. Yeah, as long as, as, long as the child consents. 
when they're like five years old or something. I, I mean, it, it's just one thing after another. Mm -hmm. They're just uh, they don't like anything objective limiting their freedom to do what they want. Well, certainly plenty to, to pray about. Brian, thanks so much uh, for Brian. your question, and uh, we appreciate hearing from you in St. Louis. In a moment, we're going to go to Dorothy, a first-time caller from San Angelo, Texas. We'll also talk with Janet in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, hopefully we can get your call in today here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still time for you to get in on uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends in the Upper Midwest need to hear from you next week. Our great uh, affiliate Real Presence Radio is airing their spring live drive next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening to any of their 25-plus stations in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Wisconsin, or really anywhere, please continue to support your EWTN Catholic radio station. You know, this was a deal that uh, Mother Angelica set up many, many years ago, and she said, hey, we will provide radio stations free programming 24 hours a day. It won't cost them anything. All they have to do is, you know, raise the money uh, there in the local communities to uh, pay the electric bill and uh, pay for internet use. Uh, EWTN can't take care of that at a radio station in, in uh, Minot, okay, or in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. That's not on us. We're, we're glad to provide programming like Open Line Thursday, but it's up to the local radio station to uh, try to keep the lights on. So please remember to support your local Catholic radio station. Here now is Dorothy, a first-time caller in San Angelo, Texas, listening on one of those great stations, Guadalupe Radio. Dorothy, what's on your mind today? Oh, thank you. Thank you for this ministry. Uh, I... Uh, notice that in the book of Genesis, the Ten Commandments are different than the Ten Commandments I taught my children. The Third Commandment, I believe, talks about graven images. And I wondered about all of the statues that are in the churches and how they're not graven images. Okay. And when did, when did that the Ten Commandments get, I'll say, changed, altered, modified? Okay. Well, first of all, they're not modified. There's two different versions of them. There's one in Deuteronomy, and I believe one in Leviticus. That's where you're talking about. Uh, the Normally, the commandment about graven images is included in the one that thou shalt not have strange gods before me. And the Protestants basically accept one expression of the commandments. We accept the other. Uh, because ours, for one thing, doesn't underline the graven image thing so much. Graven images are the idea that we worship stones, or we worship wood, or we worship uh, political figures. Uh, we don't do any of that. Not only that, but again, we're dealing with a literalist idea of the Bible in English 
that has no uh, relationship to what the uh, text actually means. For one thing, in another part of the Bible, people are commanded to make two images. One is, remember the serpent, when the people were bitten by the serpents during their time in the desert? Moses was commanded to make the image of a serpent so that everyone who looked at it would be healed. And then the classic example is the two cherubim, they cover the Ark of the Covenant. Just look at Raiders of the Lost Ark sometime, and you'll find them there. So uh, the idea of the graven image has to do with substituting an idol for God. Uh, we don't substitute idols for God. We have religious art that helps to remind us of people who are especially powerful in our lives, just like we do pictures of our families in our homes. I remember one time one of our priests went to a, he, we, went, we have a seminary in Berkeley, and he went up there, one of his friends was a Protestant from up there, and came down to his room, and Emmerich had a statue of Mary. He says, oh, you worship Mary. <laughs> So then, of course, he went up to his dorm room and he found a picture of Elvis. He says, oh, you worship Elvis. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's the same reason we have photos of people we love and things like that. We don't worship them. Mm. So uh, I think you really need to uh, not have such a literal interpretation of certain texts that aren't balanced out by other areas of Scripture which try to show what it is they're talking about there. Father, you may remember that Mother Angelica used to refer to things like like these images as holy reminders. Yeah. And uh, that may be helpful for Dorothy. Dorothy, thanks so much for yes, your call. Yes, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate hearing from you in San Angelo. Let's go now to Janet in Columbus, Ohio, listening on the Blowtorch St. Gabriel Radio. Great signal covers almost the whole state there. Hey, Janet, what's on your mind today? Okay, Father, my question is, with all this transgender ideology and all these pronouns, if somebody says they identify as a man or woman and they're not, is it a sin or wrong to call them by that pronoun, or should you, what should you do? Well, I don't think I'd ask the question in the context of sin. Um, I, I think there are all kinds of nuances to that question, but you certainly shouldn't give in to it. And I know that uh, actually our Archbishop wrote a letter on the pronoun issue, and there was one Catholic school that was divided in half over it. Really? So half the parents dissented and half the parents supported and uh, I think as Catholics, we have to be clear that it's not reality to refer to a man as a woman. I was, re- I was looking at the Facebook page today, and they have a cartoon, and there's a little girl in the kitchen with her mother, and she says, Mommy, I think I'm a boy, and the mother just says, Well, you're not, <laughs> period. <laughs> I took care of that. Yes. Wow. Uh, I do not... I, I, it, it passes my understanding. Some of you may understand this much better than I do. Why we have given in to this depersonalization, falsity, and lunacy of 0.1% of the population. What is this? 
And now, of course, you have sports. And then you have that guy who played poker, oh, the boy. female poker and one that had a beard and was elderly. I mean, it just, what is going on? Uh, I, I believe it's a depersonalization completely so that we're all supposed to become its somehow. Mm. Wow. Well, plenty to pray about, Janet. Thank you so much uh, for your call. It's Open Line Thursday here on EWTN. Our phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you call right now, hopefully we can get you on today's program. Here's a question from Bob who says, Is a baptism only in the name of Jesus significantly different from a Catholic baptism? Uh, The answer is yes. I wouldn't say any baptism, only in the name of Jesus, is significantly different from what the sacrament of baptism requires and is invalid. And the reason is because you have to baptize someone in the name of the Trinity, the Mm. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. for it to be a valid baptism. And many of the Protestants recognize that too. So it isn't just a question of Catholic baptism. It's a question of baptism, period. Got it. Uh, Brenda is watching us on YouTube this afternoon, Father. Brenda says, how do, how do we respond to a non-Catholic that, that we don't believe in the Bible alone because we have sacred tradition? But then they turn around and state that sacred tradition is written in the Bible, hence Bible alone. <laughs> Well, you had to ask which came first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah, there. yeah. Uh, obviously, the God, what's the difference between Scripture and tradition? Tradition is the Word of God preached. Scripture is the Word of God written. Now, it's true that Scripture has a special uh, inspiration connected to it where the sacred author cannot err in what he is writing. However, tradition was the first before scripture. And tradition, uh, scripture is connected to tradition. The, the uh, traditional theory, not so much the modern theory, but the traditional theory of the origin of the synoptic gospels at least, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that Matthew was written to accompany the Jewish mission. In other words, to accompany the apostles preaching to the Jews. Mm. Luke was written to accompany the Gentile mission because he was a companion of Paul's, you remember. Mm-hmm. So uh, Luke is the word of God preached to the Gentiles. And then the ancient manuscripts say that when Peter was uh, in their house arrest in Caesar's household, He was trying to convert members of Caesar's household, and they asked him to comment on the similarities and dissimilarities between Matthew and Luke from his own personal experience, which he did, and that is the gospel according to St. Mark, because Mark was Peter's scribe. Ah, okay. And after Peter died... And Mark published this at the behest of the community as the gospel. But what determines what's in the canon of Holy Scripture and inspired and what's not? Well, 
It's whether what was written conforms to what was preached. So uh, the uh, Gospel of Thomas, for instance, has always been rejected as Gnostic, heretical, because it did not correspond to what the church preached. And, and, and in Proto-Evangelium of James, mm -hmm. we do accept one thing as inspired because we celebrate a feast about it, which is the presentation of Mary in the temple, her birth and parents and parentage and presentation in the temple, but not the rest because it doesn't correspond to the preaching of the church. So the preaching of the church is the origin in tradition of scripture. Scripture is this particularly powerful, inspired uh, explanation of mm -hmm. what was in the mind of the apostles. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can't make a dichotomy between the two. And in history, especially in, in uh, Trent, which was dealing with this issue because of the Protestant Reformation, and then in Vatican I and Vatican II, which was dealing with this issue under the idea of divine revelation, they tried to discuss which was more important, and they couldn't reach a decision. They said they're equally important. They're equally sources of truth and revelation for us. All right. Brenda, thanks for uh, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. If you're up really early in the morning, you may want to check out our wonderful program, Fathers Know Best. We have a number of uh, uh, priests, uh, including our own uh, Father Benedict Rochelle of Happy Memory, who uh, uh, appear on these programs. Tomorrow morning, it's going to be Reasons for Our Hope with Father Larry Richards. Again, that's tomorrow morning, 4 a.m. Eastern. If you're up early, as a lot of folks are, this will be a wonderful way to uh, check it out. Reasons for Our Hope right here on on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to uh, Emily, a first-time listener in West Virginia, listening on St. Paul Radio. Hello, Emily. What's on your mind today? Hi. So I was listening to your discussion about um, transgender people. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, um, how do you justify that when we are called to love others and we are called to be respectful of others and... There's no way that they're going to want to talk to us or want to convert, you know, if we're being disrespectful. Okay. Well, that's a separate issue from what I discussed. That's true of anything in Christianity. So uh, the point would be that you have to be welcome to the person as a person, but not of their lifestyle. And you certainly don't have to enshrine it in the civil law and certainly don't have to expel people from school because they refuse to agree to it. And you could go down the list. Being respectful of a person does not mean that you enshrine what they want if it's not to their good in the civil law and punish people who refuse to observe it. That's what I'm talking about. Very good. Emily, thank you so much uh, for your call. Nathan is a first-time caller from Missouri, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Hey, Nathan, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I, I am an evangelical Protestant who has immense respect for the Catholic tradition, Catholic faith, and Catholic friends. Uh, and I unfortunately went through a divorce last year in, in which... Um, you know, my, my ex-spouse committed sexual immorality. I gave her a second chance. It happened again. 
um, you know, we, we just couldn't reconcile it, at least according to um, my, my tradition or the evangelical tradition. Christ says, you know, except a man be divorced, um, you know, for sexual morality, and that, that was permissible. But I guess my question for the Father is, I would like to think that part of God's plan for me is still to become a father, and obviously that requires being remarried, and I want to know what the, what the Catholic perspective is on remarriage in my situation, or, or the rules under which, the process under which it's Thank you, Nathan. Uh, that was not a great uh, phone connection that we had with Nathan, Father. Were you able to get all that? I think I was able to, yes. Okay, okay. If I wasn't, please excuse me, because I didn't... Uh, it wasn't a very good connection. He's right. Look, um, we believe that marriage is indissoluble. And the text you recite to be from Scripture, again, is nuanced according to the language in which it's translated. Um, Christ never approved a divorce. It's, it's obvious. Um, what he's talking about is a marriage that never existed. In other words, an annulled or marriage or a marriage where there was an impediment okay. to the actual performance of the marriage. Now, uh, we believe, therefore, if two Protestants marry according to the form their church recognizes and they're both baptized, if you mean by evangelical that you were baptized in the Holy Spirit but not by water, we don't look upon you as baptized, all right? But if you are baptized, that marriage is in, invalid or valid. And therefore, it has to, in some sense, be dissolved by annulment, which means that the parties weren't able to marry to begin with for some reason. They couldn't make the commitment. If uh, you were baptized, were not baptized, then, of course, it's very easy because we don't look on any of those things as actually marriages, except in a natural sense. You might have to have a dispensation from um, the fact that the form wasn't used that your church recognizes as far as a baptized person is concerned. But uh, you're pretty much free in that regard. But if you're baptized, both of you, and you're married even by a justice of the peace because Protestants recognize that, many of them do, as Christian marriage, then that's something that where the marriage bond still exists uh, if, unless you can prove that neither one of you or one or the other of the parties was too immature to make the commitment to begin with. And that's how uh, the Catholic Church would look at, at such a situation. Nathan, right. yeah, Nathan, thank you so much for your call. We hope things uh, do indeed work out for you, sir. Let's go now to Zach, a first-time caller from uh, Minnesota. And uh, Zach is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Zach, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I was calling because uh, I noticed that you often refer to the Pope as the head of the church and his father, yet uh, in the Bible in Ephesians 5.23, it says Christ is the head of the church, and also Christ says that you should call nobody on earth your father except for our father who art in heaven. And um, also, uh, just a comment for the uh, marriage portion there you were talking about, um, Christ says, uh, or uh, the 
says that marriage is to be like our uh, union between us and Christ, and that's how our uh, our marriage here on earth should be. So we should not be looking at divorce because we should be uh, connected together as one in Christ, such as Christ says we ought to be. But uh, I'll go ahead and take your answer on the uh, the Pope and the head of the church and calling the Pope Father. Uh, okay, Zach. Uh, well, when you say you, you're not referring to me, because I never said the Pope was the head of the church, period. Christ is the head of the church. Yes. But the Pope is his vicar on earth. And in that sense, he's the visible head of the church, because when he acts in the name of Christ, which is what happens in his infallibility, for example. Regarding the call you're going to your man, your father, uh, Catholics have been through this over and over again. Uh, Christ is not giving a grammar lesson there. He's not saying you can never use the term father for another human authority. For example, you can call your own father a father uh, and not uh, deny this teaching on the part of Christ. What he is saying, because remember the whole context there is the authority to teach, is that uh, all fatherhood has to be looked upon from the point of view of the Supreme Father, who is God. And all truth has as its source that. I mean, if we use the word father to describe the person who has a child, that's obviously not contrary to Scripture. Um, Jesus himself even uses the term, no one who loves a father and mother more than me, etc., etc. So it's not a grammatical lesson, and people can call human authorities father. You can call that the person in your family or the priest insofar as he reflects Christ, who is the head of the church, as his minister. Okay. Zach, thanks so much for your call. Here is Andrew in northern Utah listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Andrew, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm uh, investigating Catholicism. Um, I kind of left the church I grew up in. And one of the doctrinal points I need to learn more about is doing anything in the name of the Father, uh, specifically maybe as it applies to crossing oneself uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, I come from a religion where we're taught that you don't do anything in the name of the Father, that he, the Father is unapproachable, that all things are done in the name of Jesus Christ and through Christ. And uh, that's a point I'd like to learn more about and come to a better understanding of. All right. Well, Christ himself says he does nothing unless the Father, you know, uh, requires this of him. And what makes him son is the fact that he has a relationship with the first person of the Trinity, who is unoriginated, and so we call Father. Um, the fact is, therefore, that God the Father is the origin of the other two persons, but remember they're not subordinate to him. They're not of a different nature. But the Son receives his uh, divinity mm -hmm. from by proceeding from the Father, and the Holy Spirit receives his divinity by proceeding from the Father and the Son. It's, it's the mystery of the difference between the persons that's important in your case. They all three are God, obviously. They're all infinite. They're all eternal. They're all equal to be adored, equal to be worshipped. But there's only one 
that has no origin in another, and that's the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Okay. Andrew, is that helpful for you? Um, I'm still kind of looking for where we have that authority to address the Father or do anything in his name. Um, <laughs> it's all in Scripture, all throughout Scripture. <laughs> yes. I could do nothing unless the Father tells me. Christ himself says that many, many times. And uh, authority, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I mean, obviously the term Father is used by our Lord there. I mean, authority is Holy Scripture. And there we are. Andrew, thanks uh, for your call. Glad that you're listening to us on uh, Sirius XM Channel 130. We hope you keep listening and we'll be uh, keeping your your own journey in our prayers. Father, we're probably going to close with this question from Rianne, and this kind of points back to our discussion earlier about the state of the world these days. Rianne says, how can some people believe that evil does not exist? Well, uh, I'm not sure about people who don't believe evil exists. They just define evil in a different way than we do. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of people who don't think good exists too well, <laughs> um, because after all, there's the God who you know who doesn't keep the people from dying, who have terrible diseases and all that. That's much more of a problem than why evil exists. I, I uh, often say that. Even the founding fathers said this of our country, and they were Puritans and, and Episcopalians and Methodists, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much evidence for original sin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the reasons they built so many safeguards into the Constitution, because they knew our tendency to mob rule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the doctrines that is the most sensible evidence for Well, we need those checks and balances in our government and in our lives, too, right? Right. Father, if you would uh, please leave us with a blessing. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Brian Milady. Looking forward to our next visit, which will be Open Line Friday with our uh, Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. It'll be a, a great show, I'm sure, and we hope that you are here for it. On behalf of our great team here, including producer Michael McCall, phone screener uh, Matt Kabinsky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Tom Price for Jack Williams. Hey, we'll see you next time here on EWTN. God bless. God bless.